Welcome to our podcast, A Step Toward Justice. I am Dr. Justina Licata, and I'm a historian and professor. My research and teaching focus on late 20th century U.S. social policies, feminism, and reproductive justice. And I am Isabel Stevens, a history and theater major. We are researching, writing, and recording this podcast at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia, as part of the summer research program. In this six-episode series, we will be exploring the topic of reproductive justice and issues relating to it, such as abortion, eugenics, scientific and medical racism, and the LGBTQ community and the disability community. Please make sure to tune in every Wednesday, as new episodes will be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Before we jump into the bulk of this episode, we wanted to talk a little bit about why we are doing this podcast and why we think the issues that it discusses are important. So Dr. Lakata, how did we come to this project? So you took one of my classes last fall, so fall 2020. That class was about African-American history, so not specifically about reproductive justice, but because reproductive justice is central to my research, it inevitably comes up in my classes, right? So let me ask you, how did, how did you come to take a class that wasn't necessarily specific about reproductive justice, but eventually kind of get to seeing how this movement and framework is really central to those larger histories. So I think part of that was because of our weekly or bi-weekly conversations that we had. These issues aren't new. These issues are as old as this country and even older, actually. Absolutely. And I remember just wanting to take a course that was very different from the histories that I had taken in the past. I had taken uh, European history, American history, Middle Eastern history, and I wanted to take something that was different. And I figured that taking a course that's focused on race in the United States, particularly that of African Americans and their involvement in the creation of this country, was very important for my education. Yeah, and I think that one of the things I find when I teach reproductive justice is that students are already really aware of the issues that are central to reproductive justice. They may not be aware of that term, right? And so it's really not about necessarily learning something totally new, but recognizing that this is something that is discussed in feminist movements that are specific to people of color's experience. And that I think for both of us, this podcast is really about making sure that other people know about it too, right? Bringing more people into this conversation. And I think toward that point that that's why we're doing this and that's why we think it's important to highlight issues that people may not have thought about, like scientific and medical racism, or like just the general history of reproductive oppression in the United States. And I think that that's an important discussion to have. Great. I agree too. Should we get back to the rest of the episode? Yeah, let's do it. A note before we begin. This episode, along with the other episodes in this podcast, may contain information that is difficult for some to hear. Today's episode will focus on the concept of reproductive justice. What is it? What is its history? Why was the movement needed? All this and more are examined in today's episode. Stay tuned. Before we get into the bulk of today's episode, I want to make a note about my choice of language. The majority of the texts I consulted when preparing this episode mentioned women or women of color. While I do not have an issue with this language, I want to expand it further, so I will be supplying individuals and people of color whenever possible. Reproductive justice, after all, is an inclusive movement. Thus, the language in this podcast will be as inclusive as possible. 
In 1994, 12 African-American women at a pro-choice conference in Chicago coined the term reproductive justice. In an effort to link reproductive rights with social justice, they defined it to include three core principles, the right to not have a child, the right to have a child, and the right to parent a child in a safe and healthy environment. Further, reproductive justice advocates for and demands sexual autonomy and gender freedom for everyone. Recent scholarship has focused on situating the reproductive justice framework in terms of human rights. According to leading reproductive justice activist Loretta Ross and historian Ricky Solinger in their book Reproductive Justice and Introduction, a foundational and comprehensive text, reproductive justice, quote, draws attention to and resists laws and public and corporate policies based on racial, gender, and class prejudices, end quote. It is important to examine that the reproductive justice movement is in direct conversations regarding racial oppression, the feminist movement, the LGBTQ plus movement, and the disability activist movement, all of which will be discussed in later episodes in our series. In addition to reproductive justice and introduction, which analyzes reproductive justice through the lens of the human rights framework, other foundational works defining and documenting the reproductive justice framework and movement include legal scholar and activist Dorothy Roberts' book Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, which traces oppressive methods of reproductive control from slavery until the modern day, and Undivided Rights, Women of Color Organized for Reproductive Justice, written by a group of activists and scholars, which traces and analyzes movements created and driven by activists of color that employed the reproductive justice framework. In addition to the principles highlighted earlier, reproductive justice is a movement focused on inclusivity. So often, women of color in the United States, or those that have been identified as women, have and continue to be denied the ability to control their own fertility. The term women of color is used to refer not only to African American individuals, but indigenous or Native American, Latinx, Asian and Pacific Islanders, and other communities of color. This denial of control is seen throughout the history of the United States, from slavery to the modern notions of the welfare queen. In order to understand the necessity of the reproductive justice movement, it is important to learn about the layers of oppression that people of color face, whether or not those oppressions are explicitly stated in laws or social culture or implicitly understood in society. The reproductive justice framework is a response to the long history of reproductive oppressions targeted at communities of color. To demonstrate the need for a movement that centers on marginalized populations' reproductive experiences, today I will trace the histories of slavery, native boarding schools, eugenics, and the white feminist-driven reproductive rights movement. The horrific institution of slavery denied African and African-American women the right to autonomy. In such a dehumanizing system, where neither gender nor race was recognized, African-American women were doubly oppressed. Not only were enslaved women seen as important laborers, they were also tasked with producing additional property for their masters through childbirth. A law passed in 1662 in the Virginia colony made the children of enslaved women slaves themselves. And, because white slave owners profited from their enslaved women's pregnancy, they sexually exploited their enslaved women, either themselves or by encouraging forced mating, usually with enslaved men of a superior physical stature. Thus, it was economically profitable to have a slave that could reproduce to financially benefit the owner, who could decide to sell or keep the child. Commonly, slaveholders created incentives to encourage their female slaves to have children. Regardless of whether the woman was raped or in a consensual slave marriage, a process by which slaves married each other, though the marriage was not considered legally binding, they were often rewarded with, quote, relief from work in the field and additions of clothing and food, end quote. Slave owners also gave some of their female slaves gifts when they got pregnant or had a child, and gifts that seemed to be particularly well-received were those that recognized the woman's femininity, such as hair ribbons or dresses. Sojourner Truth comments on the lack of recognition she received from society by being both African-American and a woman. Some of her experiences are highlighted in her speech, Ain't I a Woman?, which was delivered in 1851 at a woman's rights convention. 
Her speech points out the hypocrisy of the system which supposedly benefits women, but which did not benefit women who were not white. That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? That same system, however, stripped the mothers of these children any rights to them. Even before the child was born, there was a conflict of interest between the slave owners and the slaves themselves. Aside from the fact that slave children could be sold at any time, pregnant slaves were required to work laborious jobs throughout their pregnancies. This combined effect produces what Dorothy Roberts calls the maternal-fetal conflict. The maternal-fetal conflict describes the intentional mental separation of the idea of a mother or the pregnant person and the fetus, treating them as separate entities. In other words, both the pregnant slave and the unborn child were valuable to the slave owner, so often, when a pregnant person was punished for whatever reason, the fetus was protected. Dorothy Roberts's book, Killing the Black Body, describes an account from one slave woman named Lizzie Williams about the whipping and beating of a pregnant slave. In this account, William recounts that a hole would be dug in the ground and the pregnant person would lie down with their stomach in the hole before being whipped. This was done so as to avoid harm to the child, not that that makes the punishment or any punishment really any less cruel. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the eugenics movement had begun in earnest. The eugenics movement, which will be discussed in greater detail in a later episode, in essence encourages those of superior genes, typically meaning white people, to have more babies, while those of lesser genes, meaning basically everyone who was not white, are discouraged from having children. With general beliefs like the fact that a person's character was inherited from their parents, including intelligence or propensity for degeneracy, African Americans, women of color, and immigrants were often prime targets for sterilizations based on racist beliefs. As such, women of color attempted to resist population control, which was enacted through methods such as sterilization, while at the same time fighting for the right for bodily autonomy. While reproductive oppressions are often associated with forced breeding and state-sanctioned sterilization practices, reproductive justice activists assert that true reproductive freedom includes the right to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment. This important principle broadens our understanding of reproductive liberty to include incidents of cultural genocide, like in the example of native boarding schools. To civilize and Americanize Native communities, beginning in the 1860s, the federal government forcibly took tens of thousands of Native American children away from their parents to send them to boarding schools. One unnamed government official remarked in the 1880s that to make better citizens out of, quote, Indian children, they must be taken away from their families because the capacity to raise civilized children was not in their mother's milk, end quote. The over 100 federally-run boarding schools stripped Native children of their traditions and culture. Students were not allowed to wear their Native clothing, boys were compelled to cut off their long hair, and girls were coerced into adopting traditional forms of Victorian femininity. Additionally, all the students were forced to replace their tribal names with new Americanized names. The federal government used the boarding schools to commit cultural genocide, or, as the founder of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, Richard Henry Pratt, noted, quote, kill the Indian and save the man, end quote. Native parents refused to give up their children willingly, often taking children to the mountains or hiding them within the camps. In response to Native Americans' resistance, government agents kidnapped the children, sometimes with arms, or withheld essential food rations. The Reproductive Justice Framework's principle, the right to parent, links this history of oppression to the larger movement for reproductive freedom for all.
The feminist movement of the mid-20th century focused on white women's needs and wants, including issues related to educational opportunities, political inequalities, and wage equity. This white-driven feminist movement failed to address the intersectionality and reproductive abuses targeted at communities of color, including forced sterilizations. Like the mainstream feminist movement, the white-led reproductive rights movement focused on issues impacting white women, mostly legalizing abortions and access to contraceptives. This mainstream pro-choice movement, according to Undivided Rights, quote, did not address access to abortion or the larger context of reproductive health care and left out a central element of the reproductive rights agenda of women of color, the right to have children. Historically, the reproductive rights movement focused more on legality and protecting an individual's right to reproductive health care services, which include abortion. Because the white-led movements failed to address intersectional issues such as poverty, race, and class, activists of color constructed the reproductive justice framework to build a movement that accurately represented all people's reproductive experiences. In addition to the main principles, the right to not have a child, the right to have a child, and the right to raise a child in a safe and healthy environment, reproductive justice is defined in undivided rights as a movement that, quote, identifies how reproductive oppression is the result of the intersection of multiple oppressions, end quote, like racial oppression, and practices aimed at limiting one's reproduction. Unlike reproductive rights, which addresses the legality of issues more than anything else, reproductive justice incorporates virtually all aspects of a person's identity, from race to environment and from economics to culture. This intersectionality, I would argue, makes reproductive justice that much more comprehensive and important when examining issues related to reproduction or issues in general. Now that you know some of the history around reproductive justice, let's transition to a few interviews Dr. Lakata and I conducted. In our interviews, we asked students, faculty, staff, and alums of Randolph College what they thought reproductive justice was and what it meant to them. Further, by getting a community view, we are better able to understand how people view the importance of reproductive justice. Here is what they had to say. Uh, reproductive justice, I think, is about abortion rights, rights to birth control, different things like that, making sure people are educated about STDs, STIs, uh, whatever it is now referred to as, and just making sure everyone has the proper care to have a child or not have a child. That was a clip from the interview I did with Joshua Belovko, a student at the college, in which he answered the question what he thought reproductive justice was. The following clip comes from my interview with Dr. Danielle Currier, a professor of sociology. What it means to me is every human being, regardless of race, class, gender, sexuality, sex, physical ability, that every human being has access to health services that relate to reproduction or a desire to not reproduce. So it doesn't just have to be about whether you want to have a kid, it's about whether you don't want to have a kid. Michelle Starks, another student at the college, talks about what reproductive justice means to her and comments on its importance to everyone. To me personally, it means that I should have the freedom, like in any sort of situation, to make a decision without disruption from the doctor or any outside forces. Yet people are like, oh, I'm a scientist. Like, I don't need it. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because everything you do affects that. What they do affects you. Like the previous clip, Chief Diversity Officer Keisha Burke Henderson advocates for the discussion of reproductive oppression within the wider community. I don't think that we're having enough discussions in communities about the injustices and the oppressions when it comes to like reproductive justice. No, I don't think we're having enough of those discussions. So should the institution at that point be bringing those conversations to the community? Absolutely. Yes, because we're not having those discussions enough. Another student, Avery Dinger, comments on the necessity of inclusive language. 
I think about how it affects my little brother who's trans and like the things that he has to go through and the things he's dealing with, especially when it comes to like the stereotype of like women's health and because everything's called women's health, but he's not a woman. So it's like that kind of stuff about how like I want the language mm-hmm. to like evolve more and how we need to be more open with that because we're turning away a lot of people that need reproductive justice when their movements at like encompassed within this movement, but they're being turned away because the language has not evolved to the point where they it's a safe space for them. In doing the research for this episode and conducting the interviews to create part of this episode, I wondered what it meant to be an American. And that is my challenge to you. For you listening, what does it mean to be an American? Surely, the answer to that question has changed in the century since the country's founding and, perhaps, even while it was a system of colonies. Additionally, now that you know the principles of reproductive justice, how does that framework, in relation to the brief history of oppression that was discussed in this episode, affect your understanding of what being an American is? Make sure to check out our Instagram at justice and comment on our post asking you this question. We would love to see your responses, and you can check out how other people have answered the question. Although the term reproductive justice was coined in 1994, people of color have been engaging in reproductive autonomy and agency since slavery. Since the colonial period, people of color have fought against methods of oppression, including racism, colonialism, sexism, and heteronormativity that place control over their bodies. Thus, reproductive justice is just the newest phase in the long history of resisting reproductive control, and we are thrilled to bring you a podcast that explores many topics related to this inclusive movement. Please come back to hear episodes exploring a variety of topics, including scientific and medical racism, sterilization practices in the U.S., the reframing of the Christian abortion debate, the history of clinic escorting, and the LGBTQ and disability communities and their relation to reproductive justice. We hope you enjoyed listening to our first episode of A Step Toward Justice. Please subscribe to our podcast and tune in next week to listen to our next episode in which we discuss the history of scientific and medical racism and how both are still impacting society today. Thank you to my co-host, Dr. Justina Lakata, and thank you to everyone that was interviewed to create a portion of this episode, including Joshua Belovko, Dr. Danielle Currier, Michelle Starks, Keisha Burke-Henderson, and Avery Dinger. If you would like to see images and resources related to this episode, check out our Instagram account at Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you will tune in next Wednesday for our next episode.